0: I'm gonna hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. When you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter. TIME TO THIS! Hello once again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the I-Double-M-P podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and I've made him watch another movie. It is the the depths of winter, and we're continuing a theme going on. That's right. Previously on the IWMP podcast, we talked about the 1951 movie The Thing from Another World. And now it's branded. Now it's John Carpenter's *The Thing*. We're continuing the theme, and we're we're listen we're we're watching another movie that I saw when it came out. It had a big impact at on me at the time. But this is one that um was from 1982. Yeah, and it's another version of the same story as *The Thing* from *Another World*. I wouldn't call it a remake of *The Thing* from *Another World*. I would call it another adaptation of the john w campbell story who goes there and a more faithful adaptation of the story than the 1951 version produced by howard hawks and directed by nibe this one is very definitely is a different feeling
1: from the the previous movie we discussed because this one is
0: this one is so atmospheric oh my goodness it is now i wouldn't I i would definitely describe I would describe the 1951 version as atmospheric, but very differently. Very different atmosphere.
1: The. Th- this one really leans in on some of the cold, and it uses so much high contrast. It, the fact that this one is in color, but it plays with its blacks and whites so interestingly, is so weird when I'm thinking in my mind about the fact that we watched a black and white movie that felt almost colorized with how it was it was impactful but this one is a color movie that was so starkly black and white at times and then when it uses color it's hitting in a different way
0: yeah and um and i think that some of that difference in atmosphere and difference in tone comes from when these were made the first one the uh, the 1951 version that was made by a guy who was known for very American movies, a lot of Westerns and things, or made, produced by and very influenced by uh, Howard Hawks. And it was made at a time when America was still very much in the mood of, we just won the war less than a decade ago. And yeah, we have to deal with the commies, but they're no match for good old Ameri- the uh, American know-how and capitalism and justice and meanwhile or 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 decades later in 1982 John Carpenter's version was made where America gave up on Vietnam when we're kind of locked into this will it destroy the world situation with the Soviet Union it's a very different social atmosphere and i think those are reflected in these two different movies the the, the
1: clearest thing i think to tell kind of the that That social atmosphere and that mood aspect, this is a movie that opens up with a scene where you are horrified by what's happening and cheering for one side. And if you watch that again, having seen the movie, you are horrified by what's happening and cheering for a different side.
0: Yes, that it does play with your expectations here very, very much. And by the way, before we go into more spoilers, it's hard to talk about a movie without spoilers. If you haven't seen the 1982 John Carpenters the thing. Go ahead and see it and then come back here.
1: Might be tipping our hand there, but it might be, yeah. But yeah, but yeah, it. definitely we're going to have to talk about that because we got to dive in. Anything John Carpenter really does have a you've got a you've got to dig in a little once you get started because once you break down even one bit of what it's tr- of of the story the rest of it will tumble forth. Right.
0: Is this the first John Carpenter movie we've talked about? I think this I think is it the is. first John yeah.
1: Carpenter movie we've talked about on the
0: podcast. Yeah, it will not be the last, but, but I think you're right. It is the first. And uh, John Carpenter is one of those filmmakers that I admire, not necessarily because he makes consistently good movies. He's made a lot of movies that I like a great deal. But he's one of these guys who he is an artist who must always be creating. He was just always making a movie. If he could get a big budget and a studio behind him, he would use that budget to its fullest. If he couldn't get a budget, he would make the movie he could with what he had. He just couldn't not be making movies. And I admire any kind of an artist like that, somebody who's always writing no matter what, somebody who's always making movies or music no matter what. John Carpenter is an inspiration in that way. And partly because he's prolific, partly because he controls so much of what he does, regardless of his budget it's it's always an interesting time and uh, and uh, so this was just a little digression about John Carpenter because this is the first of his movies we've talked about but um but you're right, he plays with expectations, and the beginning of this movie is no exception is that the the beginning is is the helicopter and the dog not the very beginning, I guess not the very
1: beginning that's the first scene that hits me, but I guess it's not the very beginning
0: the very beginning is is a little bit of a again a little misdirection because the very beginning is outer space and a flying saucer flying through outer space i believe the flying saucer that we see appears to be disabled in some way and it looks like it's about to crash as we see it headed towards earth and then we cut to the titles and then we cut to the scene that you're talking about with the uh the frozen wasteland but i think that that um that that very opening, that cold open on the flying saucer is significant. I'll talk more about that later. This movie doesn't assume that you know of the story, but it
1: definitely, if you know of the original thing it's based on, it'll, it'll set some stuff up early for you. The Thing from Another World wanted the fact that there's aliens to be a reveal. John Carpenter's The Thing throws aliens at
0: you at the beginning a little. Right, they make it, he makes it clear, you know, what this is about from that very first scene. And I think that does change that first opening scene that you're talking about. And I interrupted you, you were starting to describe that scene. Ah, that scene is, I mean, you get a
1: lot of that camera work and you get a lot of what you're, you're going to have to get used to it. Even more so than the other movie, this has a lot of outdoors. This has a lot of outdoors in the snow. Right. And it uses that very well because it means that you can see what's happening in the snow and you can use that contrast. And this is a movie that almost wants you to chart out where people are and what people are doing.
0: Yeah, I kind of want to lay out the whole thing with miniatures on a game table.
1: Yeah, this is very tabletop in that sense, because I want to know where everyone is at a time. I wanna I wanna mark it down because we start out with this dog running into the camp and that's how we kind of Get introduced to everyone because there's a guy throwing grenades
0: and shooting at it till he crashes and blows up his own helicopter, trying to kill this dog. Yeah, they're chasing this dog and shooting at it from the sky, and eventually, like I say, using grenades. And this guy hates this dog, and and yeah, and he's he's doing that even after the dog runs to this other camp, and we discover very very soon this is all in Antarctica. So that's not a crucial difference from the nineteen uh fifty one movie, which is set in the Arctic. Yeah, it's the opposite side. Yeah, this one, you know, starts out in Alaska and then we quickly go to the uh, the the Arctic. In this um uh John Carpenter movie, it's in the Antarctic. I don't know how much that makes a difference. It's they're not on an ice cap, they're on uh you know, they're on genuine terrain, but still. Yeah, it might change the, the response time
1: for certain types of uh, communication.
0: That's true. Based
1: on where the nearest base is.
0: Yeah, especially in the 80s. There was, there was a lot more happening north in terms of oil drilling, in terms of early warning military installations for you know, missiles coming over the pole, things like that. There was a lot more developed in the Arctic. So I would say that by the um by the 1980s yeah the antarctic definitely was more remote both in in fact and in understanding in the mood that it set and the the setup of who we have here and that isolation
1: is something that i've this is where like i get to talk about the cultural things i've noticed before about these movies the fact that this movie keeps that isolation is so important because If I had to write down what I knew about this movie before I'd seen it, thanks to pop culture and such, cold, isolated would have been two of the first words I'd have to say, because I know of, this is one of those stories and movies I know of from pop culture very well that I hadn't seen before we sat down for this movie. I knew a lot of the plot points and beats, but it was all secondhand reference. And so getting to see it there and knowing, oh, wow, when I when I thought that's what this was going to be about, it paid that off was important to me. And I was very happy to see that he was able to keep that going. And I can't imagine it being the same story if even even if it was a little faster for anyone else to
0: get to them. I see what you mean. It it being remote was very important. And in some ways, the the 1951 version had to perform a few tricks to make the setting as remote as it was in that movie. They had to have a storm coming in. They had to have the radios disrupted. And there was, there was some of that in this John Carpenter version, but there was the idea that they started out remote. The fact that we never saw any of our characters anywhere other than this Antarctic base. We didn't have the impression that, oh, it's a day's flight from someplace that has poker tables and that's more important because
1: i think even for the way this one tells its story because we in the in the previous episode we i described the uh the story as the three different camps fighting each other mm-hmm. there was the environment there was the creature and there were the humans and there was a little bit of story about one person attempting to defect from the human side to the monster's side and the the fickle nature of who the elements was actually fighting the most against and things like that. But it was really three distinct camps in a struggle. This is all about a story of not knowing who's who's on what team. And being able to keep a much clearer ring of play for this game is so important when no, when you don't know what team everyone's
0: on. Yeah. And that's one of the ways in which this is a much more faithful adaptation of the, um, of the original novella than the uh, the 1951 version, in that it is about this shape-shifting alien and the idea that it doesn't matter what someone looks like, the person in front of you might be the thing, might be uh, the alien. And that's, and to back up a little bit, that's what we learned very quickly, is that the reason that the people from this other camp chasing this dog was that the dog was infected by this alien life form and the people that we're following in this america from this american base more or less de facto led by kurt russell's character McCready who's really the not the commander of this research base he's the helicopter pilot but he quickly winds up taking control of the whole situation it's kurt russell of course he does yeah um, they find some tantalizing clues when they go to check out what they find is the wreckage of this Norwegian base, where you know, now everybody from that base is dead. Now that the people who were chasing the dog have blown themselves up, they learn what the people from this Norwegian base discovered. There's so much about the
1: way they lay out their Norwegian base, which is what was happening to the base in the in the other movie, with the burned, bombed out room, and the room with the giant ice block with the creature's body. Cavity from the ice block having risen out of it, and this decimation—it's like, it's like they walk onto the set of the other movie, The Bad End, (laughs) right? And then go and then say, "Oh, dang, stuff went down here. Let's go back to our building." And then they do, and then all the rest of their movie plays out here. But there's very much some of those key key things of the broken windows and the bombed out rooms and such. From the first
0: movie are in the Norwegian base, and that was fun. It was. It was like this one big Easter egg for people who were familiar with the uh, the earlier movie. Everything we had seen from the earlier movie had taken place in this Norwegian base, and like you say, it had the bad ending with the dog escaping.
1: And meanwhile, we're getting all these little hints of this dog, which is not the dog. It's not a dog. Taking over, or like planting the seeds of what will happen later across the building. It attacks at least and possibly can like takes over at least one person and it's
0: put into the kennels with the other dogs though before we leave the norwegians yes i want to mention the fact that they find videotapes shot by the or movies shot by the norwegian team oh yes that explains it, it it absolutely makes it clear the fact that what happened at the norwegian base was the original movie because we get these videotapes oh yes and they're in black and white, and we, we watch over the shoulder as people watch them. And it's reproducing scenes from the original, With- where they all step back and spread their arms, and they start to show that what's under the ice is, is a big circle. And we show them to, trying to melt the ice to get at it by using thermite. I don't know for sure, but some of that, uh, those shots in the videotape that they find in the Norwegian base i think some of those shots might be lifted from the 51 movie they weren't i was the, weren't. i was
1: comp- i don't think so
0: uh, because but they looked so they much looked like so it, it so good great. you're it right You east- oh they're blowing it up with thermite and they destroy it yeah. it's like all the mistakes that we see the people make at the beginning of the, the 1951 movie that's what the norwegians did to start with but yeah, they didn't find no carrot,
1: and that's the problem.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. It was not just a emotionless, super strong creature. Oh, I never considered that, that the previous
1: one was actually the follow-up to our Veggie Tales episode. <laughs> just gonna leave that there for a moment. Um But yeah, no, no, this one was not a vegetable. This one was the uh the body snatcher, the the the, the shapeshifter creature.
0: Yeah, the perfect mimic. Mm-hmm. And, oh,
1: goodness, they, their special effects have some fun in this movie, but I'm going to
0: tell you right now, this was way more graphic than I was ready for. Yeah, this is some good old you know, John Carpenter gore in this movie. Yeah. And it is, it's a little more like a uh, David Cronenberg movie in some ways, in that it's it's a lot of body horror, as you realize that the the people you, you thought were humans are actually um just quickly morphing alien organism and some really really intense graphic extremely well done scenes in which that plays out but it starts out not with people like you were saying it starts out with the dog and that that right there is creepy in such a a direct way because the
1: dog like once the people aren't there the dog just gives up the idea of being dog shaped and this scene of it turning into the the giant flailing creature in the middle of the dog pen, with all the other dogs scared of it, is so terrifying to begin with.
0: Yeah, the dogs sense that there's something wrong with it. Um, the other dogs more more than the humans uh, do. And the meanwhile, this dog who had wandered into the camp, they're just kind of letting it wander around the camp until somebody says tells the guy who's t- taking care of their team of sled dogs, "Would you put this in the kennel with the others?" Um so like who knows how long it it was wandering around for at least a, you know, a better part of a day before they put it into the kennels and 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 when they do put it into the kennels and it's alone with the other dogs then we start to see what's really going on and that's where the the real story I feel
1: comes in because once it's revealed what is happening all of the power dynamics and all of the story comes through because we've got the doctor figuring out what this thing is and what it's doing and we've got the people who were in charge uh and macready who is just like sheer unflappable force of will charisma in charge kind of in a little bit of a struggle for who's making the decisions and no one can know who is actually human and it it becomes this this fight for survival on the individual level, but also on the the group level as they try to sort themselves into the groups
0: of who's on what team. And in some ways, McCready seems to take over as the leader very quickly because, A, he's smart and, and thinks quickly and is decisive and an action hero. But also, he is the character who is the most of an outsider, more of an outsider than anyone else. And he is is has absolutely no dams to give about any of this. You get, he spends his into all of his time when he's not actively flying the helicopter. he spends it in his shack separate from the other quarters, getting drunk. That's his thing. You get the feeling that McCready has
1: seen at least one other action movie's worth of just stuff to wear him down already
0: right I mean I would be i don't know that they say, but just based on the way he carries himself based on some of the accessories that he wears. Probably a uh a veteran probably was flying helicopters in Vietnam when he was fifteen years younger. And uh yeah, he he's got no patience for uh for most of what the scientists he's flying around care about.
1: This is not our our charismatic huzzah commander from the, the other movie. This is like I will pull a gun on you and I will just dead-eye stare you that I'm not messing around.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, definitely not the all-American Air Force uh, officer. He is the, you know, this monster stuff is getting in the way of my drinking, and I've got no time for this.
1: I'm going to die. I'm not going to go down without a fight. I don't care what it is that killed me. I'm just not going to go down without a fight.
0: And they all find out what's happening when they stumble upon the alien, in the middle of trying to take over all the rest of the sled dog team, throwing out these weird bloody tendrils, and essentially the infected dog turning into some giant hairy bloody tentacly arachnid thing.
1: And I, I do, I do love the fact that uh, McCready goes so quickly to the. There was a lot of stuff burned in the Norwegian camp. Get the flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they did all the testing but it it also leads to one of my favorite bits, and it's a bit i've never i before I'd seen this movie, I still had this clip saved on my computer because it is one of the best like reaction images sometimes, which was just the
0: Mac f- wants the flamethrower Mac wants the what because
1: there is just like everyone's just like, wait a minute what he's going straight to there but that is that is such a a quick summary of the McCready character of the Zero to flamethrower because he's gonna just follow what
0: he knows and put A to B that quickly. Right, McCready is is smart and he's quick, but he's not subtle. Yes, he will go. What is the best chance of my dealing with this problem very very quickly? Flamethrower, get the flamethrower. Exactly. It also has one of my favorite lines that just introduces how these uh, these characters are are. Reacting to what's going on, where Clark, the guy who tends the, the dog team and is the first to discover what's going on, just as the others come running in to join him, he's reporting. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Yes. I just love that, that line.
1: This is a good movie just in terms of, of quotes and quips. A lot of John Carpenter movies are. Oh, I yeah. Think. But. Some of what he, some of what the dog was escapes and that's one of those bits that early on shows part of what we 're dealing with of the fact that it's not it's not a singular killable thing in that sense
0: right. we learn a few things pretty quickly, and some of it we learn by kind of watching over the shoulder as wilfred brimley 's character the 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 research uh, doctor, is taking samples and analyzing them and realizing how it, it mimics other things at a cellular level. A Very useful computer
1: simulation is able to figure a lot of that out for him in some ways.
0: Right, yeah. It, it figures out not only what it's doing at a cellular level but it immediately calculates how long until the entire world is affected if this, infected if this ever gets to a, uh, a population center. You know, those kind of things that are just built into a, a 1981 uh, when, uh, uh, Microsoft DOS uh, machine.
1: Oh yeah, that's you just you just put that in. It's on the C drive. You're good. <laughs> I I gotta say this. The one one thing that bugs me about this story is that they early on say that any contact can be infection, right? But then there is not as much control and careful planning to avoid infection as I'd hoped. There's yeah. a little bit like. They they make a very serious, you know, one drop is death, but then they're not as careful as I want them to be then. If they told me, like, the moment it sees that it can, it'll turn this bit blue, and then it'll grab you. Like, that's all it needs for this, for every single other scene to work out the way I'd expect. But the any bit can still look like whatever it wants and still grab you is great for suspense, but... It frustrated me, the person who takes down the notes as to how the things work. It's the way I deal with scary f- stories. I I try to create the the rules list. Right. But the fact that it was a little fast and loose on that at times dig, got me, but I appreciated all the rest of it.
0: True, but they do establish fairly early on that it needs a certain amount of time and isolation because it takes some time for this alien material to fully mimic another living organism so that, you know, they're putting in storage the body of somebody who's been killed and has been infected by this thing. And then, you know, the two people are doing this. One person has to leave. He comes back and finds the other guy, like, dead and half-mimicked. So that's kind of where they learn that rule and why they institute the idea that nobody should be alone. Everybody's got to be in sight of somebody else at all times so that we know if this thing tries to take somebody over. And of course, there are all these logistical things about somebody is out of sight of of all the other people for a little while because they were outside or because they they got away or something. And that's where you know, the idea of plotting this all out with miniatures would be, I mean, I don't know if John Carpenter did anything like that, but maybe he did to keep this all straight. But it becomes so important who was where, with whom, when. Because much of the movie is trying to figure out, and the character is trying to figure out who is really human and who has been taken over. Because we also learn the strategy that this creature is using. And eventually we hear McCready articulate this. And that is if it can hide, it will hide, because that's the safest course of action. It will pretend to be as human as it possibly can and bide its time till it eventually can get out to where there are more humans. If it is discovered, then it will use its ability to change, its ability to grow, its ability to exert strength and kill people to ensure that at least part of it gets away to take something over later. And that knowing that strategy drives the whole second half of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's when the 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 two teams being defined
1: happens and then it's just sorting who who's on what because everyone is kind of on board with the no one watch everyone else everyone watch everyone else thing to some extent after the initial combat and then it's finding who stopped playing that game
0: and we've got some pre-existing tensions not everybody at this uh, base was friends with everybody else there's a particular animosity uh, that some people have for the nominal commander of the base is played by Moffat I forget his Daniel Moffat forget his uh, uh, first name but he's a, a terrific character actor and he plays the, the the leader of this research base who wears a side arm and others seem to think he's a little too fond of being in charge and there's Childs who is very outspoken very critical of McCready, and they don't get along very well.
1: No one gets along with McCready too much though
0: right. most of them just kind of stay out of McCready's way. Child seems to like butting heads with McCready and letting McCready know that I don't like you very much
1: yeah McCready, McCready and child's would be the ones you'd expect to get in a fist fight first before all this happened. right
0: and meanwhile the the research scientist who discovered the threat to the world that this thing represents. He has gone in with a fire axe and destroyed their computers and destroyed their communication system and he is responsible for how isolated they are in the second half of the movie in that it's not just that a storm blocked their radio signals like in the uh, the 51 version it's that this scientist when he figured out just how dangerous all of this is he wanted them to be isolated he he hadn't gotten to this yet, but you get the impression that he just figured we all need to die up here rather than risk the rest of the world.
1: Yeah. He also, I think he, disabled, he disables a lot of the vehicles too, right? Yeah, he does. And they they get panicked and lock him into
0: the shed. Yep. They lock him in the tool shed. I think I might find a better place to lock somebody away than the place where... Everything he might possibly need to break out or do whatever he wanted to do could be found. Yeah,
1: that's a little bit of a problem. That's a little bit of a not-forward thinking. But they put
0: him in there, and you almost forget about him for a while. Right, right. Although when they do go and check on him is when some of the people get separated. You know, They send three people out, and... Somebody, either intentionally or not, I forget which, like cuts McCready loose from the line so that he can't find his way back through the the blizzard to uh, to the base. Although, of course, he does because he's the the action hero. Mm-hmm. So yeah, well, they they he's Blair, the doctor who's locked away, is kind of this you know little external loose end to be dealt with through a lot of the movie.
1: There's a lot of setting up stuff that pops up later, I think, across that first half and into the second, because they set up like different clue points that then get touched upon later in terms of uh him in the locked up room, they they have uh someone destroys a bunch of the blood bags they've got and the the medical supplies so that they're running on low on that. Right? And, and they set up a few things about um, like systems and tools and things that people have on hand. Uh, the amount of explosives they've got on hand and things like that, I believe, is kind of hinted at and mentioned. Then,
0: true, and it um, so it becomes not just a question of figuring out who might have been alone for a certain amount of time, but it's also who had access to the keys to this medical locker, who might have been able to destroy the um the equipment and the the helicopter and the snowcat in some ways
1: if you were to try to map this out you could try doing so on a clue board <laughs> it's like this person with this in here and this person with this in here but this guy isn't it is not is also a thing that would be a cool board game that would be a good board game i, I think there is a board game for this yeah there might be i gotta check about yeah, that. yeah we gotta find that but then once everything starts like clicking into place because the I, this is around the point in the story, if I'm following linearly along, when they figure out, or when McCready figures out the, um... oh no, we've got the autopsy first, because that reveals something. Uh, when they go check one of the bodies.
0: Oh, right, right. They, they check the bodies and they find that it was like partway turning into something else. Mm-hmm. So how, how is that depicted? Well, they, they check one of the bodies they bring back
1: and they find they, they find that it's, you know, halfway changed before it got burned.
0: Oh, right. One of the bodies that was frozen outside the Norwegian camp.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. And that's when they start noticing things are mimics. But then they're checking their own dead. And they learn like it was pretending to be dead during one bit. And there's a really creepy scene with it turning into a mouth
0: oh that was when uh, that was later on when one of late. the scientists had a heart attack oh yeah and uh, but to back up you're right it was um uh the autopsies revealed some of this these may look like humans on the outside but inside like there's half of a head of something else because it was preparing itself to to change form and the thing they found outside the um the norwegian camp it looked like two humans fused together in this bizarre, horrifying way. They spend it, a
1: lot of time focusing on some of these models.
0: Right. It turned out it was probably the thing trying to reproduce by splitting apart into two things. But, uh, but it was really creepy either way. And, uh, but yeah, the, later on, one of the scientists uh, has a heart attack. And one of the doctors, are, they're trying to revive him. And they're, they're using the uh, defibrillator paddles. And his hands, holding the f- defibrillator panels, go right through the guy's chest, because the chest has now opened up into this giant mouth with teeth and bites the guy's hands off, paddles and all. Which is, ho- I mean, that, that that was a bit where I had to look away. It was fast and gory and creepy, and it was just surprising in... In this very effective way.
1: A a lot of modern horror wants to use the jump scare. But it uses the jump scare by getting in the camera and therefore the audience's face. And using proximity and sound for the fear. This one had half of its jump scare be back a step. Watching the reactions of everyone else getting surprised by this. It was a jump scare by adjacency instead of directional?
0: Yeah, it wasn't a jump scare in that. A jump scare is usually something that we weren't looking at is suddenly loud and fast and in our face. In here, it was something we are looking at, we are focused on, and we're invested in. We've all seen in movies and TV and uh, maybe in the real world, scenes of someone being revived from, uh, from a heart attack. So we are focusing on this, we're invested in the outcome, but we know what we're looking at. And suddenly, we're still looking at it, and it is completely different than we thought it was. Suddenly, it is dangerous, it is weird, it is inexplicable, and we're still looking at it because we were focused on it for one reason, and now it's something else. That was the one point in this movie that I think the movie conveyed the same and created the same sense of emotion that the characters must have been feeling. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we, are, we know what we're looking at. Wait, no, suddenly it is something completely different and totally dangerous.
1: And we learn from that because after this thing has now attacked someone and they burn it immediately, they're fast on that. They've got their flamethrowers ready now. They know what to do. But part of it tries to run away and they learn, oh, this thing can like split off. It is the, the this isn't one creature. This is a pile of creatures when it takes over because there's this really weirdly comedic scene. Of the head running away and then being noticed.
0: Right. It like sprouts spider legs or something and becomes this, again, arachnidal sort of thing Mm -hmm. and crawls away. Very weird.
1: It makes you wonder if that's its more, if an arachnid is more of its base form or if one of the first things it learned to mimic was an arachnid.
0: Oh, that's a good point. I wonder. But yeah.
1: but there's this weird, almost comedic scene of like this thing looking at Macready and McCready looking back, and there's this ta- like shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot. You're kidding me! Before they blow it up,
0: and I do wonder, you know, why are there so many flamethrowers at this base, and do we ever learn what kind of research was being done at this Antarctic base? It's like facility 41 or something you know we i don't think we ever find out what are these guys all doing down in the antarctic with lots of explosives and flamethrowers in their basic equipment and fully equipped medical labs and scientific research labs and things you know what we're not sure this is a weird
1: question i want to know why this base is there yeah this is a well stocked base for the for right. the thing they happen to be facing
0: now here's an idea it gets a little bit alien, uh, you know the um, you know, Ridley Scott alien saga. Was this base sent there because somebody knew there was something in the ice? That's another difference from the uh, 1951 version, where whatever it was crashed recently. In here, they establish this thing has been under the ice for somewhere around a hundred thousand years. That that
1: early at the beginning is completely faking you out because you think that this has just happened, and then it's a no. That was ancient that you saw in the at early be-
0: start. That's freaky, right? I'll have to take a look see if the, they've m- m- moved the continents around. Any uh, not that a hundred thousand years is that big a time geologically, but um, but yeah, it's like the it's like this thing is uh is this flying saucer is crashing. Then a hundred thousand years later, there's a dog running across the ice, and that's actually one of those useful things as to why they
1: had to move it from one pole to the other because they need land mass that it would stay on
0: true it would move around too much if it were in the uh, the ice cap it could have floated
1: down to russia if it was right or or maybe canada but i
0: think yeah it depends on just where it ended up
1: depends on where it ended up it wouldn't have stayed in one place as long
0: but that's a great point yeah i guess it really would have to be uh in the antarctic to stay put in that way for a hundred thousand years it's a great mm-hmm. point but yeah, they, there's a question as to why
1: they've got so much explosive, but they right. use it.
0: Yeah, they've, they're they're there. There's a whole bunch of guys down there doing some kind of research, and they've got a lot of dangerous things with them. But that, that scene, when the, the guy's head runs away after they discover that he's, uh, he's an alien because he had the heart attack, that teaches MacReady something.
1: And this creates one of those other things that I'd known from pop culture as one of those, like general universal movie bits which was the blood tests
0: yeah that is iconic and people who don't know this movie probably know that scene
1: because that scene is like mccready at gunpoint just lines everyone up and like get has them tied to chairs
0: at gunpoint at explosive vest point at flamethrower point he's got everything he possibly can yeah because because he, McCready was cut loose out in the storm for a while, and he, everybody knows that he was on his own. A lot of the others suspect that McCready might be the alien, so he is set to blow himself up and everybody else if they try to come for him. And then he finds a way to prove that he's not,
1: because if the head can run away from the body, then then a little bit of blood will try to run away if hurt.
0: Like, yeah, you know, every cell is a separate, can be a separate organism with its own survival instinct.
1: And so this little test of the hot needle and a petri dish full of blood of each person and just poke each one and see what happens.
0: And it's very well done with that sense of tension as he takes each sample and as more and more people are cleared and they help him with the process and there are fewer and fewer people out there and they're almost certain that somebody is an alien mimic. And the candidates get fewer and fewer. And this is a midpoint kind of
1: because if you've been following along, you're starting to try to make checklists in your head. And giving everyone a chance to reset their checklists is interesting because it means that you start fresh again. But it means that the entire previous section of all these things happening, of all these things being set up, is like round one of the game for you. Because the moment they finish checking everyone off, you move into uncertainty again and ever and you get you get that tension building once again
0: yeah, you're right. I never thought of it as a reset, but it really is okay, as of that point, they know who is who is human, and it turns out that some one of the one of the guys was uh was an alien, and there's this Great violent scene as it's it's the there it's it's one of the people tied down to the couch. They discover it with the blood test that it is an alien, and again following that strategy, it's like well mimicry is not working right now, so I'm going to get big and dangerous and scary and start killing humans, and it does until uh, McCready burns it with a flamethrower. I feel so bad. One of the guys,
1: Windows, who is. Like once he's cleared, he is so like
0: helpful and useful and he just gets completely chomped by this when they reveal it. Yeah. I'm like, oh yeah. I mean he he hesitated. He was the guy with the second flamethrower because and uh and McCready's flamethrower was not working for some reason. It was jammed or something. Yeah. And yet Windows was just kind of shocked and wasn't using the flamethrower that he had, and before he did, he got chomped, like you say.
1: He was almost kind of an apprentice character to mccready during a lot of earlier bits too.
0: <laughs> he wanted to grow up to be mccready
1: in a weird little way, and then and then and then Windows suffered a fatal error and crashes here, and I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and I I know I'm leading in just for that joke in some ways, but no, I I really like they get you these characters' personalities because you see you see everyone just break down in the tension early. Which means everyone is well-defined by the time this is happening, and each death hits you.
0: Yes, right. I mean, we've got the the one guy, Nalls, I think he might have been the cook, mm. and he would run around the, the, the inside of the base on roller skates with some cool music playing, and, and he's, he's cleared by the blood test, fortunately. But you're right, everybody had a particular... Um, had a very, very, uh, a very particular personality. They were all very well defined in that way. No, every, everyone is at risk, but no one feels expendable. And that's right. an important part. Even the guy who had the heart attack and whose chest turned into the giant mouth and all that, he was noteworthy in that he was the blandest of the characters. He was kind of, yeah, just this, he was, if
1: McCready was the guy everyone could agree they didn't quite like, he seemed the, the, the um, our, 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 our Mr. Heart Attack there seemed like the guy everyone liked. Right. He was at, ver- at at worst innocuous. Exactly. And so the fact that he has this horrifying and this simple death, but then the horrifying result. Right. Hits you hard because of that. There's, there's a lot of creepy, goopy John Carpenter gore aspects, but there's never an aspect of that that doesn't come along with a... An emotional hit which almost makes it tougher
0: he was uh, he was harmless and here he is both being killed and being very harmful in terms mm-hmm. of what he turns into so that leads them to have this smaller number of, uh, of people and they do decide at some point that you know this is too dangerous we can't get out of here We have our priority has to be destroying this thing. And then I think it's shortly after that that the they go check on Blair, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, there's a little bit more there. I thought there was at least one more like round of infection and combat. Oh, is there? I thought so. It gets a little muddy at this point because the pace really shifts here. They've spent so long building up tension, but the end of the movie's runtime is coming up. And I feel like things just get a little faster here. Because right. That-
0: yeah. Action movie style that it just, um, the, uh, they put the accelerator down. There are more, more violence, more explosions and things, um, you know, keep spinning out in that way.
1: But they go to check on their, their doctor in the shed. Right. And he's not there.
0: No, he's not there. Previously, they would go and check on him and he would ta- say these apocalyptic things about none of us can get out of here. None of us should get out of here. He's got a noose hanging from the ceiling though he hasn't used it. But then they find out he's just not there. And he's got a secret passage. I mean, this thing could change shape at will. It's not going to be hemmed in by a crudely built tool shed in the Antarctic. So it's been busy. And it's been building
1: a ship. And that's one of those fun bits where they like go down the tunnel and they have this they go down the tunnel and there's this big moment where there's this long tunnel with wooden boards along the floor. And the, and the, the fight in the tunnel as they find a ship at one end and then go back to like, nope, we got to get rid of this. And in a fun reversal of the original, the fight becomes it's dangerous for the humans to be on the wooden boards.
0: Right, right. And it was very, uh, very much a great nod to those, uh, those crucial scenes in the 51 version.
1: Mm-hmm. Because the, the, this creature is now... Once again, we've seen that once mimicry is no longer an option, this thing is just a, 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 gnash, a, a, a whirlwind of, of spikes and teeth and gnashing and wailing that will come for you.
0: Right. It'll grow whatever it needs to grow, be it claws or, or spider legs or tentacles or teeth. To destroy whatever's threatening it, and it will grow to whatever size it needs to. I don't know how exactly conservation of mass works there. Yeah, it's but not. It figures something out.
1: Yeah, it figures something out, and it just starts land sharking up through the floor. Mm-hmm. And the sheer ima- a a lot of people wind up dead very fast in this bit because of enclosed corridors and this thing no longer caring.
0: Right, you go from there being like four or five of them left going around planting explosives oh and at one point it takes out the power system for the heat doesn't it yes like in the in the 51 version it and they start to think that well either it has an escape plan or it figures if it gets rid of us it can wait another 100,000 years if it has to mhm but uh, they're going around trying to essentially plant explosives and destroy the base get to the generators get to the fuel support uh, so- sources and uh, But during that process, they start getting picked off by the, the creature, because they separate into groups, to, and then we see what's happening to one group that's being destroyed, and then the other group gets separated. It's almost a little more generic uh, horror movie at this point. Right, a little more kind of dark maze, what's around the corner, where is the monster kind of stuff. And it works very well. It's a good example of that, and it's the appropriate place in the movie to turn it into that. Mm-hmm.
1: But- I mean, you do also get more questions as to why there's this much explosives in this.
0: Right, right. The, the and these co- extensive <sighs> underground
1: tunnels, too. I'm getting more and more co- curious as to why they were up there to begin with. You've gotten me on a weird train here of wondering why. Why do they have this much explosive? I don't know. But pretty much the, it ends with a giant fireball, a giant explosion that blows everything up.
0: McCready succeeds in using the explosives that he had over down in the, the generator room where all the fuel was to really the entire camp is exploded in, in flames. And then Childs comes back and Childs had gotten separated from the others. We didn't know if he was dead or not.
1: And this is the final iconic scene I knew of, which is a clutching his flamethrower McCready in the bombed-out corner of one of the buildings, sitting on the floor, as Childs comes and sits down opposite him, holding his own weapon. And neither of them trust each other anymore.
0: Right. Neither of them trust each other. McCready makes the point that, you know, if either of us had a surprise for the other, there's not much we could do about it now. So you wonder, if if one of them was the alien, why were they staying mimicked? Why didn't they just kill the other? and yet maybe there was some other strategy there maybe they thought that uh, you know a f- flame this big is going to attract attention maybe some other humans with a working vehicle will show up maybe i'll just let this human freeze to death once the fire goes out and then i can go and finish building that ship that blair was working on so i suppose there there were reasons why it was possible that one of them was uh, was an alien but it ends with you un- being uncertain and that Oh, that gets you. Yeah, they're just sitting there waiting for the fire to go out, and then they'll freeze to death. And in the meanwhile, they're, they're passing a bottle back and forth. Which
1: is not good method if it is, in fact, one of them being bad. It's like, nope.
0: Well, I mean, of all the different vectors of of, of uh, infection at that point, the bottle's probably the, the least of their worries.
1: Yeah, it's probably one of the least of their worries.
0: But it is, on the one hand, it is a very comprehensive ending in that all but two people are dead and the building is in flames. And you start to realize, yeah, this is probably more or less how things might have gone over in the Norwegian base, except for that dog and the two people in the helicopter getting away. And we don't know what then happens to those two remaining people.
1: Yeah, this is one of those movies whose ending is is final, but also not. Not a the end card in some ways. Right.
0: It doesn't ask for a sequel, but it leaves some questions unanswered in a good way. Right. Which might be leading us into our
1: questions here, but I'm trying to think if there's any final points I want to make about just watching this movie as a whole. And definitely, definitely this has a a, a feel to it. The entire movie has kept you on this tension curve the entire way. It has kept you invested in these people. It has kept you interested in what's going on but it has done so while never making you feel like it is a movie that makes you feel alone even when it's full of people in the in the uh, the scene and that is good it is it is a highly stylistic movie in terms of its its tone and in terms of its environment in that sense
0: that's a good point. We talked about the feel of the 1951 version being very claustrophobic. We're in these small rooms inside the base. I mean, after the first act of the movie, everything is pretty much indoors in the 51 version. There's all this overlapping dialogue. People are a little bit too close together. I always kind of felt like the, in the 51 version, like and when I'm watching it, I'm one of this group of people. I'm not just watching them from a distance because there is no distance. We're all stuck in this tiny room and I'm one of them. And we're all tripping over each other's conversations and trying to figure out what to do. And I never had that sense in the John Carpenter version. The whole, they as much as they seem isolated, they seem isolated because there's all this big empty terrain around them. They don't seem isolated because they're locked into these tiny rooms in the same way. There are some scenes that are like that. But that's one of the differences. It was more about isolation and less about claustrophobia, mm-hmm. and it's more about cold the the
1: fire and the ice like aspects, and the the cold tundra and the the flamethrowers as the weapons everyone's clinging to 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 prove
0: humanity. Oh, that's a good point. They do use fire when they figure that out in the in the earlier version. But there was, it, wasn't, it was never controlled. It was always an element they were calling on in desperation. It was not a weapon that they were wielding in the way that McCready with his flamethrower was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is definitely a difference.
1: And in some ways, that means that if I'm looking at it by the, uh, the trifecta of who's on what side, the elements, the environment, has become not, the, not a combatant, but the referee
0: yeah, it's sort the, of leveling the playing field a bit. Mm-hmm. The, the the The
1: environment is just going to say, "All of you are dead when I decide." Fight amongst yourselves. <laughs> it's not. It's not coming through a window and changing the balance for one or the other. It's just gonna kill you. Meanwhile, you don't know who's on what side of the two that are actually fighting each other, and so you get to focus on them sorting each other out into the the red team versus the blue team a little bit more here. And there's almost a capture the flag. Like, are you on this team? Did you, did you change jerseys when I didn't see you? Kind of like, I want to chart it that way with the miniatures, but it, it removing one of those, those groups means that the fight between the other two becomes more intense.
0: And that's where in both of the movies, that final gambit of the, the alien entity is so powerful because it changes that dynamic. Suddenly, it's deciding if I let the cold in, if I let the the elements win, I can wait, and I can survive. If I let the cold in, you're all dead, and that that changes it. Mm-hmm. Essentially, it's the the alien has now recruited the the elements to aid its ultimate survival. Because it knows that it's going to kill the humans and not it.
1: And in in some ways, maybe that question means that if we're looking at the elements as a whole, the humans have always had fire in this one, right? But the the alien finally recruits the cold, who has always been there. But he finally recruits the cold at the end. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I guess that's kind of again equalizing. Just just like the just like who is on what side gets split on the main fight, the environment gets split at the very end there on who's on what side
0: so when the alien realizes it's at the fire gym it uh, figures out what kind of uh, of Pokemon to turn into oh goodness I'm sorry I got a switch recently and I've been playing Pokemon Shield
1: (laughs) you're not allowed to leave any two Pokeballs in the same room alone
0: (laughs) so yeah I think it might be time for our our final questions I think so so you know the first one for a movie screen or no screen
1: (sighs) I'm going to say screen, but I'm going to say personally, this is not going to be a screen regularly. This is going to be if a I'm, I, I'm glad I watched it once, but it's going to be a while before I go back to it.
0: That's a good point. I don't know that I've watched this movie since the 80s. I certainly haven't watched it since the 90s. It's not a movie I watch regularly, and um, I, uh, that's, that's fine. I don't think I need to watch it more than every few decades, but I'm glad I did rewatch it. I'm glad I showed it to you. Uh, so I would say screen, unless you hate horror movies, unless you can't stand movies with any kind of gore or body horror. If, if you don't like those movies, yeah, don't watch this. If uh, if if you can deal with those movies and you want to see a very good example of one,
1: yeah, screen this movie. Mm-hmm. This, I mean, it is an extremely good example of that, but you've got to be ready for the amount it'll give you. I I actually asked us to pause at least once. Yeah. For me to reset how I was a sitting down to approach this because it was so much more turned up to 11 on some of those aspects when it decides we're going to show you creepy mimics decide like halfway in being pe- people it'll show you that and it's doing so for a reason it's it's putting that vis that visceral disgust punch alongside the emotional punch it was setting up as I was describing before but you've got to be ready for that in it in any quantity before you sit down to watch it
0: right and and certainly that's not everybody's thing so um it sounds like we're both issuing it a qualified yes screen it Mm -hmm. so that brings us to the next question that that is revive reboot or rest in peace oh this gets tricky because this is a another reinterpretation of
1: another of the story and we've seen two versions of it so far And I really enjoyed how this one approached it and what it gave us, but I'm actually going to not say revive because I'm worried about messing with how this one told its story. I think that if you were to continue this story at all, that undercuts the ending in a way I don't want it to. So I'm going to say a reboot because I want to hear more about this concept. I want to see this, the interpretations of this root story. And maybe interpretations of how the John Carpenter is the thing discussed this story more, but I don't want it to be beholden to the original, in part because I don't want anything to go backwards to the original to change stuff.
0: I agree. If if we're going to choose any of those, uh, I'd probably lean, I, I wouldn't say revive. Although, interestingly, I don't know where this would fit. There was another movie made. What? I haven't seen it. In 2011 a movie also titled The Thing that was a prequel. Okay. It was essentially what happened at that Norwegian base. Okay. Okay, that I can at least see. I haven't heard much about it. I don't think it was necessary. I like the limited tantalizing information we get about the events at the Norwegian base from the investigations that are our characters in uh, the John Carpenter movie make but if you need to make another movie in the same continuity it was definitely the right call to make it a prequel and not a sequel and mm-hmm. i don't just does a prequel count as revive i guess so i guess so I- it's another it's another story in the same continuity and everything that happened is canon it just happens later okay that gives me an
1: idea but i want to hear the rest of your your thoughts first i'm gonna
0: so um yeah i i haven't seen that i'm not against seeing it it just never compelled me to to really seek it out and i don't need a another movie like that so i'm not going to say revive i'd be happy saying rest in peace but i i think i would agree reboot i think that there's so much in this idea just as they turned the some of the very very basic broad outlines into such different movies in 1951 and 1982 i think now you know as much time has passed or more, that story could be used to tell, that outline could be used to tell another powerful story that was relevant now in the 21st century.
1: And if, if they were to do another prequely thing, thinking about that, we just we asked why in this. I could see something that's a little bit more of a a Sorkonian political drama that happens to end with the fact that there's you know, now a base out there with a, way more explosives and fire things that they need. Because someone decided that they had to get funding to this thing. You could give me a story that doesn't have to be set there with the creature that happens to lead into why they've got the stuff there. But we don't need that. I'd, lo- I'd like to see them explore the story of what we've got in the potential here. And if, if, if this is a lens being used to review society at different times, let's, let's, let's point the lens again and see what we get this time.
0: Now, if we're going to reboot this have a new take on this basic story originating with that uh, John W. Campbell novella. Where would you set it? The 1951 movie was set in the Arctic. It starts in Alaska, takes place in the Arctic. The 1982 movie takes place in the Antarctic, and we talked before about it. In some ways, that had a more, a more remote and isolated feel than the Arctic would have in the 1980s. Would you pick one of those two environments, or would you move the story somewhere else?
1: It kind of depends on what part of the story you're trying to tell. Are you trying to say a story about the risky thing? We can't have escape with isolation. Are you trying to tell the story of something that comes out of the ice? That might be very important and, and poignant in a day and age where there's less ice. Are you trying to do something where it is, are you, are you trying to keep the environment as much of a competitor as some of these ones had where you need an environment that is harsh to human life in a way that it, might not be other elsewhere, I could see you moving it all around. If you still need the isolation, the the Antarctic's great. If you still if you need the the released from the ice aspect to be to be put into greater context and you want the risk of it getting out into major transit faster, put it into the Arctic again. If you really need the environment being harsh I could see a version that takes this same sort of crashed creature and putting it in the middle of the desert. Hmm. Replace, replace our snow with sand and give us a, a desert research station, desert telecommunications station that finds something as a dune shifts. And it's this, this thing that attacks and the heat will kill us all instead of the cold, but you can parallel back the other way. You could tell that same sort of story as long as the environment was harsh enough. I could see you playing it with any of those, depending on what aspect you're trying to emphasize for what story you're attempting to mimic in the, the real world that you want to you wanna make commentary on.
0: Yeah, I could see that. I could see it being moved to something like a desert environment. I could also see this story being told in an undersea base. Ooh. Because, you know, it's isolated. The environment outside wants to kill you with, you know, temperature and pressure and no air. And there could be things under the ocean for a long time that we don't know about. And, uh, you know, thinking about it and describing that, there might be ways in which James Cameron's The Abyss is a relative of the thing but with a happy, friendly New Age ending. I don't huh. know. I might be off track there, but it just occurred to me where well, a bunch of people in an isolated underwater base and there are aliens around. Uh, yeah, that I sounds guess. like a movie. Yeah, that kind of does. Huh. Another possibility that might be relevant for the next few decades, put it on the moon. Oh, that's a pretty good one. And one reason I mention that is there. there is this recurring talk about a movie adaptation of uh, Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness, or some other reboot of that kind of story idea. And that was set in the Antarctic. And that was set in the Antarctic in like the late 1920s. That was like the remotest place you could imagine humans going for any scientific purposes back then would be the Antarctic. And it's not as remote anymore. There are people in the Antarctic, all the time now. So maybe, especially as various countries around the world are starting uh, efforts to go back to the moon, putting it on the moon would, uh, would make a certain amount of sense. It wouldn't have quite the same sense of urgency and danger about it getting to the rest of humanity, if it's on a different planet, so to speak. But in terms of creating an isolated remote environment, The moon might be a great setting.
1: I have a counterpoint. I can make it urgent for you. Oh, yeah? This movie has them come across a building that is very much the scenario of what happened in the other movie. Twisted a little to fit its version and then continuing on to another place. Give us the story of a moon base because we've got our, our international group, more of the ISS crew kind of group coming to set up but there's an earlier expedition done by a private firm that had set up a partial base and they're going to be setting up next to it and maybe have some communication and such but they crest around it to find the place bombed out vented atmo and destroyed and they are exploring what's happening and they find dead two dead bodies staring at each other the rest of the place has been blown up they explore <laughs> there's half of a ship built underneath one of them give us the the the, 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 the transplant the map and then go from there oh, tra- but give us this map with the with the, the the shed with the ship and that means that it was already almost done making an escape route you
0: tra- oh i like that you transplant the end state of john carpenter's the thing to the moon and then pick up from there, mm-hmm. just and- like they transferred the end state of the or the bad ending end state of the 51 movie to the Antarctic and carried on from there. I exactly. like it. You can do that with that, but that gives the. The
1: fight already happened and the escape method was almost already complete, and then it becomes a defend the point. It's still out there. We can't let it get back to finish its ship being our fight and problem. Right.
0: Yeah, it. you start out with, it's got a way to get off here if we let it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it can't survive in hard vacuum, so it just has to wait long enough for someone to find a piece of it to bring it into a proper environment so that it can grow and take more things over and get into a suit that'll let it finish its spaceship.
1: The moment we opened the door, the fight started again, becomes our problem.
0: Right. So hard vacuum becomes like the ice. It can wait, it just can't operate there. Mm-hmm. I like it, that that works. That works really well. Oh yeah. So I mean, there, there, and that that kind of
1: continues. That I mean, there's so much of this story that respects the previous version. I'd say.
0: Right. Yeah. It it acknowledges that it it's it's bypassing it to go back to the original fiction, but it acknowledges the uh, the fifty one version.
1: And so I would hope that anything else that would continue on would do the same back because there's so many people who know this story because of John Carpenter's The Thing. And so if there was anything else that wanted to continue with this this root story, I would hope that it could show this movie that same kind of respectful nod because it was how, it, it was how this story was able to continue in that sense for this time.
0: And early on, we could have a, a, a really brief cameo by Kurt Russell. As a vacuum frozen McCready, in the remains of the old base. I hope he would be open to that.
1: Oh, I would hope so. That'd be fun.
0: So there, I think we've answered our questions. Yeah, and we've continued our our winter theme, going from the Arctic to the Antarctic. This is this has been a fun combo. It has. Yeah, we haven't done too many uh, of those sort of themes, unless you count altered states followed by Veggie Tales, which I do count. I do count as
1: well. Yeah, that was that was that was a thing. But this sort of themed month is something we might come back to, because right. giving, giving a set of stories in one thematic group definitely let us compare them in ways we hadn't before.
0: And we will be back in a couple of weeks with mm-hmm. another podcast, more talk of, of media from the 20th century. And in the meantime, uh, Ian, where can people find you? I can be found on Twitter as ItemCrafting,
1: on Twitch as item crafting live, and on YouTube as ItemCrafting.
0: And you can find me at MatthewFPorter.com. You can find me on Twitter at ByMatthewPorter. And uh, you can find the podcast at IMMProject.com. There you'll find all of our back episodes. You'll find a link to our Patreon. Thank you very much um, uh, to our supporters for supporting the the podcast. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and getting some interesting uh, bonuses and benefits for that, uh, go ahead and follow that link from IMMProject.com.
1: And you can always join us on our Discord to be able to chat with us about the movies we've talked about on the show, what we might be
0: talking about in the future, and the things you've been watching now. Absolutely. And you'll find a link to that on immproject.com as well. So thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for supporting. And we look forward to talking with you again soon. And in the meantime, go find something new to
1: watch.